Good afternoon. Today I have Trevor Wood with me. Hiya Trevor, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Trevor Wood, um, the author of uh, a pair of gritty crime thrillers set in my home city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Uh, the first one was The Man on the Street, uh, which has won a couple of awards, uh, and the sequel One Way Street, which was released in hardback uh, about a week ago. Um, uh, did you always want to be a writer? <laughs> well, I started quite late, I guess. Um, I mean, my background is, is very varied. I wanted to be a journalist when I was at school, um, but my qualifications were like zero, really. I got an English O-level and a maths O-level, and that was it. Um, and I ended up joining the Navy. I was in the Navy for 16 years. Um, but ironically, I joined as a writer. It's a branch in the Royal Navy. It's... Um, it's like a cross between human resources and payroll and admin, really. Um, so I was technically I was a writer for 16 years in the Royal Navy. Uh, and then and then when I left, I finally got to be a journalist. I, I retrained as a journalist uh, and then I've written plays. Um, but I didn't write my first crime novel until I was in my 60s. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I have always wanted to be one, but it took me a long time to get there, really. <laughs> And what made you finally take the plunge and go for it and write your first novel? Well, I've been writing uh, on my journalism course. I met a, a, a guy called Ed Woff, who um, for some reason decided that he and I should write something fictional together um, and kind of nagged at me for years to do something. Um, and I, we both went our separate ways and, uh, you know, worked as journalists. Uh, and then I moved to uh, the city council in Newcastle as a press officer, but he kept, nagging away at me every time we went for a beer he was saying we should sit down and just write something and I've still no idea why he thought that was a good idea um, but one one day we did um, we sat down and wrote a play together uh, and about four months later it was on at one of the local theatres professional production um, and we went on to write about a dozen plays uh, which which did pretty well some of them have toured all over the world uh, a couple of them are still playing to this day I think there's a new tour planned for one of them later this year uh, so so that all kind of steered me towards creative writing, if you like. Uh, and we'd been doing it for about a dozen years when it wasn't that the opportunities started to dry up, but it got harder and harder to get plays on. Most of the theatres are run by local councils. Uh, they were all having their funding cut back. Um, and original theatre is really expensive. So they, they were reluctant to take risks on new plays. They were taking touring shows rather than putting their own new stuff on. Uh, so I started to look for another avenue, really, and I've always been a huge crime reader. Uh, so I thought, why don't I try and write a crime novel? Uh, and I went and did the um, University of East Anglia's first crime MA. Uh, they've always been the big creative writing course, but they've always been quite literary, and they suddenly decided that they would do a specialist crime writing course at almost exactly the time I was trying to write a crime novel. And I thought, this is fate, obviously. Yeah. So I applied and I got a place on that. And that's where The Man on the Street was developed, on that course. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that, actually. I've applied to there for a Masters as well, but it's too far away, really. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the crime MA, the, the joy, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not as far away as Newcastle <laughs> for you, but the joy of the crime MA is that it's part-time and you only have to be there three residentials a year for two days a time. So I thought that was manageable, um, 
there's a kind of two days in September, two days uh, in January, and then two in the spring. Uh, so it wasn't uh, much of a time commitment, really. Uh, all the rest of it is done online, um, which which worked out really well for me. I might have to relook at that then. <laughs> have a look if you want to be a crime writer. Don, it's a great course. I mean, truly great course. We had, um, I think, we had eleven people on the first course, and five of us are now published crime writers, and two others have agents. So, good chance of seven out of eleven. Um, becoming published, which is an incredible hit rate, I think. Um, so people are like Harriet Tice, who wrote Blood Orange, was on my course. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I just finished a forensic science degree. Well, I say finished, I need to retake Unix, I failed, but, you know, I'm close. <laughs> Almost there. Almost, yeah. It's my own fault. But, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um. If you were to be a character in either of the two books you've written so far, which one would you choose? Oh, God. <laughs> well, my books, I, I probably should have mentioned, my books are set in the homeless community, primarily. Um, so most of my main characters are homeless. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily sure I'd choose to be any of those. Um, there is, there is a, a probation officer uh, in my books called Sandy, uh, female. Uh, who is my favourite character to actually write. Uh, she's quite rude, very acerbic, doesn't follow the rules. Um, so I'd kind of like to be her, I think. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's great fun to write. She shouldn't be in the book anywhere near as much as she is, but every now and again, I think, I feel like writing a Sandy chapter. So, so Jimmy, who's my main character, has to go and see his probation officer a lot more than he ought to, really. <laughs> You know, it's my book. It's my book. I can do what I like. Absolutely, too right. And obviously, everyone else agrees. So, if you're allowed to keep it in, then it must be all right. Yeah, exactly. I think my I think my editor likes her as well because, you know, my my um, editor's uh, a woman as well. So I think she likes the fact that I've written a really strong gobby woman um, <laughs> who takes no crap from anyone, basically. Is that based on anyone you know, or is that just imagination? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Probably my editor Jane thinks it's based on her, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not claiming it is. She might be listening. <laughs> as long as you don't say your wife, that's fine. <laughs> you could have a very long weekend. If you... I did. I wrote um, I, before I wrote the Man on the Street. I wrote. You know, every writer has got a kind of practice novel in their drawer. I think before they get published, and I wrote a kind of comic crime novel um, called One Night Stand, pun intended. Um, and I had a character in there called Mrs. Briggs, which is my wife's um, surname, Briggs. And um, and she was like a nosy neighbour who was always, um, you know, pulling the curtains and peeping out to see what was going on next door. Yeah, she wasn't <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I'll not be doing that again. No, <laughs> not if you've got any sense anyway. <laughs> Sometimes it's unintentional, you know, even in The Man on the Street, my main character is called Jimmy um, uh, and his wife in the book is called Bev. And it was only when it was published that I realised that's my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's names. Um, had no idea, just, just didn't even notice at all when I was writing. They did, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, at least that means they're reading your book. So, you know, it's winning all right, really. <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't believe how hard it is to get people you know to read your books 
do you know, I, I was really shocked when I started doing this, how little people's um, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, whatever, were not interested in what they'd done. It's actually really common. You hear it a lot. I mean, I, I, I mean, my wife's been great. She does read. She's my kind of final reader before I submit anything to my editor, really. Um, uh, and my daughter is the other one. My daughter's twenty-three now, um, and is is a surprisingly good copy editor. She's very good at, at at spotting like little mistakes or just continuity errors or something like that. So those two do read it before I send it to my editor generally. So I'm I'm not too bad, but I've heard horror stories from people who's whose parents have not read their book years after they've been published. And it's amazing to me. I'd be like straight on it. If it was my, you know, if Becca wrote a book, I'd be reading it immediately. Yeah. Why wouldn't I you? I mean, I, I feel sorry for the partners because even if they don't read it or don't want to read it, they will know about it, I find. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it does get talked about a little bit. Yeah, I've heard, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you have any fears or phobias and would you write about them? <laughs> I don't really. Um, I don't like beetroot much, but I'd probably write about it. I don't know. I, just, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not particularly... Actually, I guess I don't... I'm not a huge fan of heights. I'm not completely phobic. Um, and I'm quite happy with flying and stuff like that. None of that bothers me. But I don't like looking over the edge of a very tall building. Um, I get that kind of, I don't quite get vertigo, but, you know, I get that kind of bizarre urge to to fall off and see what it's like. Um, but I think, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't be bothered about writing about it. I think it's, you know, it's not something that would scare me writing about. But I don't, I don't like looking over the edges of tall buildings. And I don't like doing, for instance, those, um, I tried to do one of those go-ape courses once, you know, the things in the trees. And I lasted about 30 seconds. I literally walked up onto the first thing, started to walk across, and it was wet and slippy and horrible, and it was too high. And I just <laughs> took the escape route and, and bailed out almost immediately. Uh, so I don't like like rope bridges and things like that are not for me in, in gardens and stuff. Nah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've never even tried one of them things because I'm just saying. Nah. <laughs> it yeah, looks no, I, I, I didn't realise quite how bad it was until I did try it, and I just went, no, not doing it. I'm getting off. It's a bit embarrassing when you have to call the, you know, the, the yeah. guard or whatever and say, let me down, get me a ladder. Especially when they're like 10 and they're just Yeah, like... I, know. I know. And I was being all macho as well until that point, but, you know. But other stuff, no, I'm not worried by creatures or anything. Um, what's the most interesting thing you found when you've been doing research for your books? Wow. Interesting. I think the most, I often talk about the most in, interesting kind of response and um, and result. I, I, I messaged the Port of Tyne Authority um, to try and discover where a body might end up if it went into the River Tyne uh, at a certain point, at a certain time of year. Um, and I got a, a brilliantly detailed response from the Harbour Master, which gave me like, several options as to where it was possible a body would end up which was brilliant and, and one of them was fantastic and, and, and is the one that ended up in the book um, but then I realized that my, my point of contact at the um, Port of Tyne uh, was a woman that I had worked with a little bit in the past um, 
but also I'd forgotten she went to school with my wife. Uh, and I was asking her where her body would end up if it was thrown into the time <laughs> at a certain point. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that to this day, she's keeping an eye on the newspapers to see if the body turns up. Um, so she's got her eye on me, I think. So that was probably the most unintentional uh, bit of fun research I did. But it's amazing. I, I'm sure you've heard this before, but people are incredibly helpful. You know, you, you approach people you've never met before who are busy professionals with questions and they'll give you time in a heartbeat really I I was trying to find out what happened with um animals who are poisoned um you know how vets deal with it and whether there's any kind of you know like with a human if, if somebody was poisoned then then there'd be all kinds of tests that would be sent to laboratories and checked and I wanted to know what would happen if it was a pet uh, and and I spoke to a veteran, a veter I can never say this word, veterinary nurse. I'm just going to say a vet nurse. Um, I spoke to a vet nurse who, who didn't um, know the full details, but she did point me in the direction of an organisation that deals with, with it called something like the Vet Poison Information Service or something. And I emailed them. And within about half an hour, I was having a very long chat with the guy who ran the place. Um, <laughs> gave me all the information. It was fantastic. Um, and it's all out there. And, and if you say you're, you're researching for a book, most times people will talk to you and, and tell you what you need to know. It's great. Don't need to leave the house. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, since, um, since I've done my degree, I've had a couple of people message me and I never know what I'm going to get when I open my Facebook Messenger. It's um, any just weird, varied things, but it does make me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I think people... People like to share their expertise, you know. If they've if they've worked hard to get it, they quite like to tell people about it, which is great for writers. Um, so yeah. yeah, I've had all sorts, and I'm 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 never um, never shy about just asking people if I can find the right guy, um, because they'll they'll nearly always help you. Yeah, especially for me with forensics, because you know most people think I'm weird and it's gross, whereas writers <laughs> are like, ooh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But also, I think, I mean, my, my books are very firmly set in the real world. I mean, it is, I, they are set in a homeless community. So I wanted to make sure it was a real place rather than some kind of fictional town that had a bizarre number of homeless people. So mine are set very firmly in Newcastle. Um, so I, I, I do try really hard to get all the details right. So I'm con continually wandering around to places that I'm writing about and just checking that everything that I remember is accurate. Um, and I've just actually, I had a message yesterday. I've just been talking to them today. There's a kind of organisation that, that um, like a charitable organisation that looks after a particular part of the city, place where a lot of the bars and kind of some of the, the more interesting pubs are underneath the bridges, um, just, just off the centre of the town. It's like the cultural area now, really. But I've, there's a lot of dark stuff happens in my book around that area. But it's all in very real places and they want to do a little walking tour where where they read bits of the book out um, in the places where they're set, which is fantastic. That's the kind of thing you dream about when you write this stuff. Um, so that'll be great fun. I mean, it's pretty gruesome, some of the stuff. So I don't know how that will go down. <laughs> she was telling me, actually, she, the, the woman who asked me was telling me that she... Um, she read a bit of the book while she was at work very late at night and there was a, somebody was burnt to death in a car park 
Um, and it was their car park and she had to go out and get in her car after she finished reading it. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't imagine these things when you're writing them. It's like, oh, that's not going to happen. But uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Does your wife sleep with one eye open? Does she worry about you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the other way around. I sleep with one eye open. <laughs> Um, do you have lots of author friends? I do, yeah, actually. It's kind of inevitable and essential, I think, unless... I mean, there are some writers, I'm sure, who stick, stay in their house and write their books and, and, and don't kind of mix with the rest of the community, but it's such a, an incredibly supportive community um, uh, and always has been since day one. I mean, my, when I started doing the MA... I mean, there were 11 of us on there. I, I'm still in contact with every single one of them. Um, Harriet Tyson, Kate Samantz, who was also on my course. We're sharing a house at Harrogate at the Crime Festival next week. Um, Harriet was uh, up, up for my launch a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we all stay firmly in touch. Not only that, but we share our work around as well when, we're, when we've got a work in progress. The three of us still swap stuff around because we did it on the course. And we learned to trust each other, so we still do it now. Um, but even right at the start, the, the very first time I went to Harrogate Crime Festival, I literally knew Harriet Tice and nobody else. Um, but within a couple of days, I had like five, six, seven people I would have counted as friends. And, and now I've got dozens. Um, and they're all incredibly helpful and supportive. Um, I'm part of a group called the Northern Crime Syndicate, seven Northern crime writers, who did have plans to do all kinds of live events um, together, but we formed about a month and a half before the, the first lockdown. So we haven't done any live events in person, but we've done, I don't know, about 20 Zoom events together um, since then. And actually most of us met up for the first time a couple of weeks ago in, in real life for about 18 months. And it was bizarre because it felt like we'd known each other for, for ages in real life when we'd only met a couple of times, you know. Um, but all kinds of other people as well. Mari Hanna, who's a, a Northeast writer who shares the same agent as me, has been a huge support. Ellie Griffiths shares an editor with me. She's been fantastic. Um, I can't, you know, there's too many. There's, there's, you, I could keep talking for hours. Pretty much every crime writer I know has been helpful in one way or another. And do you get a lot of feedback from your readers? Yeah, it's great. Readers are fantastic. I, I, some, I, I do have some writer friends who don't like reading reviews and stuff like that, but I devour them. I mean, maybe, thankfully, most of them have been pretty good. I guess if it was the other way around, I might not be so keen. Um, but I love chatting to readers. I love, I love meeting readers. I wish I could have done more of it. I was, you know, really unfortunate that my debut came out on March the 17th last year. Um, I would literally had my launch planned on the 17th and it was cancelled at lunchtime. That's how close it was to actually happening. It was just before lockdown. It was about, you know, three days, four days before lockdown. So nothing officially was really being closed, but Waterstones nationally decided to cancel all their events. So I lost it on the very day. So until last Sunday, so like almost, what is that, about 16 months after my debut was published, I did my first live event where I was actually signing books um, and chatting to people. Uh, so I've got a lot to catch up on. I think they owe me dozens of those events now. 
but I love it. I, readers are great. They're, they're, it's fantastic that people engage with your work. Why wouldn't you like that? I, I can't imagine, you know, not enjoying that because when you're writing it, you just you kind of think, oh, maybe ten people will read it, and and, and I'll know I'm either related to or married to or whatever. <laughs> they're all my friends. Who else is going to read it? But but you know, having complete strangers come along to talk to you about your book and tell you how much they've enjoyed it. It is just one of the best feelings in the world, I think. Yeah. Um, what's been your favourite moment so far, being an author? Is there one that stands out more than any others? God, there are gazillions. There are so many. Um, uh, I've been lucky enough to get, get shortlisted and longlisted for quite a few awards. Um, so obviously all of those have been brilliant. I won the the Crime Fest debut Crime Novel of the Year Award a few weeks ago. Um, and Richard Osman was on the shortlist for that, so I didn't really think I was likely to win that one. So that was pretty joyous. Um, I've just been shortlisted for the Theakston's Crime Novel of the Year as well, which will be decided in about a month. So that was a pretty good moment. I didn't see that coming at all. You kind of, you know, when you're a debut writer, you kind of, have a hope that you might get a mention in, in some kind of debut award shortlist or longlist or something. But to be included in the actual crime novel of the year listings is incredible. Uh, I mean, Val McDermott, Mark Billingham, uh, Ian Rankin were all on the longlist and none of them are on the shortlist. And I am, and I'm just looking at it going, that's insane. That's <laughs> completely insane. Um, so that was great, but probably, my favourite moment was that at the age of 61, I played for the English crime writers against the Scottish crime writers in the, in the, in the bitter football battle at Bloody Scotland Crime Festival. <laughs> and we won 3-0. Um, and I hadn't put a pair of boots on for about 20 years. So I was, that, was, that was a highlight. Good. I'm glad I like that. <laughs> <laughs> My wife was apoplectic that I was going to play she was like you'll you know I'll call the ambulance now kind of stuff um, <laughs> so it was great to be able to ring her up and say not only am I, I in fine fettle but we won 3-0 as well and I played most of the game <laughs> so I think that one I relived my youth <laughs> nice <laughs> and what's your uh, biggest dream or your biggest goal Oh God, have I got any left? I'm not. I, I, they've kind of all come and gone and been ticked off. Really, I want to. I want to. I want to kayak down the Grand Canyon. Is that? Can I throw that in? Nothing to do with writing, but I've done. I've been to Canada quite a lot. Um, my daughter now is out in Canada, um, uh, doing a, a degree in. Actually, she's not doing a degree now. She's doing a PhD soon in September. Uh, in criminology, um, which is perfect for me. I can get some tips. Um, but we spent a ton of time in Canada over the last 20 years or so, um, and I've done quite a lot of whitewater rafting and stuff like that. Um, and you can kayak down the river at the foot of the Grand Canyon. Um, and I've had the brochures for years, but I've never kind of found the moment to do it. And if I don't do it soon, it's going to be too late. So, so that would be great. Writing wise, I, I I just want to keep writing. If if I can keep writing and getting my books published, that'll do for me. I, I you know, 
the awards and the nominations and stuff are fantastic, but I just want to keep writing. And if my publishers will allow me to do that, that'll be the dream, really. Well, I think that they think they've got it made. If you've uh, been nominated for so many awards so far, then they must be rubbing their hands together, thinking they've made a great choice. <laughs> well, I've got I got a two book deal originally, and they've given me a second two book deal, so that's four. But I've already written the third one, and I'm just starting the fourth now. So I, you know, you're only as good as your next book, Donna. Really, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like you're fine. I mean. Uh, are you uh, someone that has uh, imposter syndrome like most of the other authors I speak to? Actually, all of the other authors I speak to. Yeah, I think everybody <laughs> everybody has it occasionally, I, I think. I mean, obviously, when you start to get these nominations and stuff, that helps a lot to make you think that you're doing something right and, and getting great reviews from readers is good as well. All of those things help, but there's always a moment in every book where you think this is just crap isn't it this is just unreadable nonsense and you read stuff back and think what was I doing yesterday what <laughs> I should go and get another job um, but you know, I, I'm a great believer in editing editing is a really that's where all the skill is I think you know get the words on a page and if they're rubbish sort them out later because editing is where all the magic happens I think so I do sometimes go, who wrote that? It's just terrible. Um, but you can make words better if you don't write anything. You've got nothing to edit. You know, I don't believe in blank pages. I don't really believe in writer's block very much. It's your job. You know, if, you, if you're a full-time writer, as I am, then I have to sit down every morning and write. Uh, and if I'm not doing that, then I'm not working. Uh, and I can't really claim to be a writer. So I like to get the words on a page, even if I'm not feeling it, if I'm, you know, think I'm clearly not in the in the right kind of frame of mind to write the beautiful literary um, genius that I normally write, I just get something down and then improve it later on. So, yeah, of, of course, anybody who says they don't get that at all, I'm not sure they're telling you the truth, but... <laughs> I, I, from from talking to other writers, I don't think I get quite as much as some people who seem to have it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked recently um, what I'd learned about authors because I've interviewed, I don't know, over 100 now, I think. And I said my answer was that they're all insecure, quivering wrecks sitting on their own in their little rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too bad, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of right at one end of the spectrum on that, uh, I think. That's good to know, actually. It's nice to know that some of you have confidence in what you're doing. <laughs> um, what's your most overused word or phrase that you constantly have to edit out or get shouted at for using too much? Oh, God, what did I find? That's a really hard question. Oh, my, oh, my editor picked it up, actually, um, and it was back in the day. Uh, and she she mentioned it on the last edit of the of my third book, uh, and 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 she didn't say anything next to it, so she just kind of highlighted it. And I was reading this sentence and thinking, but that's that works okay, that's fine. And then just instinctively, I searched for the phrase, and it was in the book six times. Um, and I thought, oh, fair enough, that's why she's <laughs> highlighted it. Just, uh, and I don't know, because it's not, I don't think it's something I say generally when I'm, you know, in normal conversation. Um, uh, 
And it wasn't all the same character, which is even more annoying because that's not, you know, it's not a very good way to distinguish different voices if you're giving them the same phrases. Uh, so I had to remove, I left one of them in, I think, and found different ways to, to say it, really. So, yeah, that's definitely one of them. And I do, I don't know, how much am I allowed to swear on here, Donnie? You're fussy about that. <laughs> I mean, my books are set in the homeless community, so if people didn't swear a lot, it would be pretty odd. But I do, one of my first big edits is a fuck edit at the end of my books, basically, because <laughs> I, I seriously, if I've written a 400-page book, then there will be about 200. Um, so, and even I accept that that's too many. Um, so I, I do a huge edit and I literally look at every single one of them and, and say, does this need to be here? Does this earn its place in the book or not? And if it doesn't, I get rid of it. And by the time I've done that, I'll probably have about 100, um, which is about one in three or four pages, which... For a dark, gritty thriller set in the homeless community, I think is acceptable. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I, I mean, just because when when you're writing dialogue and it's you know between two homeless guys, or when there's some some violent scene or somebody's being attacked or threatened or whatever, if they're not swearing, I'm not kind of I really don't know what world that is because <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense to me. So there tends to be a lot in the dialogue, but then when I'm going through, I think okay, it's there's too much. I don't need it all. Just take a lot of it out so yeah that's one of them <laughs> i did tell you that i live work in luton uh, but swearing is like standards i work yeah. in retail as well so you know yeah. it's fine <laughs> and, my, and my books are set in newcastle upon time right in the city you know it's it, it's <laughs> i know some people don't like it but i've never understood that it's just a word frankly and it's you know and it's as just as acceptable as any other word. It's in the dictionary, and people use it all the time. Or at least they do in this environment, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I always say I don't swear as much when I'm not at work. When I'm at work, I swear pretty much constantly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but people do. But I do know. I, I do know there are some people who don't like it. But you know, they really probably shouldn't be reading my books. <laughs> no sensitive little souls, bless them. <laughs> Um, if you were able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Oh, well, I can't. If I can't say any of my friends because that would upset the other ones, so so I'll have to go for somebody. I think I'll say James Elroy, the American um, crime writer, who is as mad as a snake. Um, I don't know if you've ever if you've ever come across him. If you get a chance to watch one of his YouTube videos where he's doing a reading in public. Uh, it's it's just the craziest thing you'll ever see. He's he's got some kind of persona. Um, I think he calls himself like Mad Dog or something. And, and his his readings are a are a sight to behold. Um, uh, and I've seen a lot of documentary stuff about him. And he's had a really fascinating life. His mother was murdered way back when he was a kid, and that's kind of coloured his entire life. And he writes very dark crime novels. Um, including one that is kind of fictional account of his mother's murder as well, because they never um, discovered the murder or anything, so so it went unpunished. Uh, so he's got some incredible stories about his life, um, and he's a really interesting guy and a bit of a lunatic. So I think you did say 24 hours, didn't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. I, don't, I wouldn't want to do much more than that. that that's probably <laughs> sufficient, I think. <laughs> You'd be worn out, I think. <laughs> yeah, but I think it would be very interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know what I'm doing when I finish this then, straight onto YouTube. <laughs> Honestly, have a look. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so what do you like to do when you're not writing? Uh, well, when the world is normal, um, I'm a huge music fan, so I go to see a lot of bands, um, go to a lot of festivals. Uh, so I've really missed Glastonbury. I've been to about the last six, seven Glastonbury's in a row. Um, ironically, hadn't got tickets for last year's, um, which was cancelled, and then they held them over for this year, and that was cancelled as well. So I'm hoping they might start again next year and just put them back on sale again um, so I can get there again. But I did actually, I spent the weekend watching a couple of shows because, you know, the BBC, it's Glastonbury weekend just gone. The BBC show a lot of old Glastonbury stuff. So I was watching some of that to make up for it. And I have tickets to see about, I don't know, about a dozen bands in the next few months. So I hope at least some of those are going to happen because um, it's been way, way too long. Uh, so that's probably my main outside interest. But I still play a lot of sport. I play a lot of cricket as well. Uh, and that's not been too bad. It's kind of, if, you, if you're going to play a sport in, in lockdown, then cricket is not too bad because you're pretty much socially distanced <laughs> the whole time. You know, Everybody's standing in a huge field a long way away from each other. There's only a couple of times in the middle when you're batting or bowling or something that you get close to anybody. So, <laughs> so they manage to keep playing that most of the time. Um, so, yeah, I've been playing a bit of cricket, which is lovely. What sort of um, bands do you like? Oh, God, all kinds. I'm a bit of an indie kid, really. So guitar bands, big fan. But I've, I've, I've kind of come into dance music late in my life, really. I, a couple of my friends were into it, and um, so seeing bands like Chemical Brothers and stuff like that at festivals kind of, kind of changed my taste a little bit. So I, I do like to see... A good dance band now and and guitar bands very varied taste really yeah because i love live music as well and i go to like little festivals i've never been to glastonbury although i want to but yeah so i was interested i go to all all sizes of festivals <laughs> i'm hoping the the lindisfarne festival which is up on um right next to holy island up here uh is supposed to be happening in september so i'm hoping to catch that one um, which is quite small. I mean, they've got some decent headline acts. So I think Dizzy Rascal is headlining this year, which should be fun. Um, but yeah, I've been to Deershed. It's quite a small festival, um, just in near Thirsk somewhere, uh, which is great. I, I've been to loads. I've been to festivals overseas as well. There's one. Um, there's one you can go to that's on an island um, in the Danube, just off from Budapest, called Zaget Festival which is fantastic. Um, I loved that. Uh, I'll go anywhere to see music pretty much. One of my other highlights, which I've only just remembered coincidentally, is that there's a, there's a very small band called She Drew the Gun that I'm a big fan of. Um, and they have a wonderful song about homelessness. And um, I was trying to get tickets for their, their new tour recently. And there was a bit of a problem with the site to get them. And I went onto their Twitter account and just said, do you know what, what's happening with these tickets? And to my joy, Louisa Roach, who's the lead singer and songwriter of the band, actually runs their Twitter account. And she, and she sorted my ticket out. And, and I thought, well, 
I'm not going to miss this opportunity. And there's a big Geordie saying, shy bands getting out, which means, you know, if you want something, ask for it. So I went back to her and I said, Louisa, look, um, and, and I explained who I was. And I said, look, I've, I really love your song poem. Um, and I'd love to use the first few lines as an epigraph on my third book. Um, and I quoted them to her and she said, yeah, use them. And normally you have to go through lawyers and all kinds of stuff to, to be able to use song lyrics. Um, and I was able to just screenshot that conversation and send it to my publisher and say, right, these are going at the front of the book. So I've got a quote from one of my favourite bands at the front of my third book, which I'm delighted with. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, it's like I was, I'm, I'm more pleased with that than the entire book. I'm like, look. <laughs> um, who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, God. I'm really old. You'll have never heard of them. <laughs> uh, actually, no, I think let's go on. Let's go for Debbie Harry, the lead singer of Blondie. Surprisingly common choice. Really? Yeah. Well, if, if you're of a certain age, when she first appeared on Top of the Pops, it was a bit mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like her anyway. She's awesome. But yeah, not yeah, she is. Way, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it helps that she's bloody brilliant as well as being stunning looking. Um, but but definitely the first impression was the visual one. But then the songs were fantastic as well. And my kind of music as well. So great. Win-win. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's it's really funny when I ask that question. With women, it's either David Cassidy or Donny Osmond. And then men, it's either a cartoon character or Debbie Harry. Like, cartoon character? Yeah, I've had... What, Jessica Rabbit? No, um, I've had Velma from Scooby-Doo. And who else was it? A couple uh, of times. Yeah, someone from... Um, oh, I can't think of uh, what the cartoon is now. But yeah, I'm just like, all right then. <laughs> okay. That is pretty weird. Yeah, I don't judge. And also, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of Scooby-Doo, but I, I, I don't think I'd have chosen Velma. No, crop. the other one. Yeah, I can't remember her name. What is her name? <laughs> I know, how bad is that? She's Potter and... Yeah, oh, see, Velma, that probably means Velma's the more interesting character because you remember her. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that's uh, for someone else to decide. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? Okay, I'm, I'm, I, it's not that I can't think of any, I'm just trying to narrow them down. <laughs> You'd be surprised at what I've heard, so you won't shock me. I think this is kind of, I mean, it's not that embarrassing, but it, it kind of could have been like the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. So when I, I was in the Navy for 16 years, and um, when my ship was in Athens, uh, Piraeus is the port in Athens, um, we had a bit of a party on board, um, uh, where it, when ships go into foreign ports, quite often the local embassy people have sent out invites or parties for you and you get a load of people turn up and have a party on your ship. And we had that and uh, a few of our visitors were going on to another party somewhere else and invited us to go along with them. So we were like, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and of course, we've got lots of alcohol on ship. So I had filled up like a large plastic carton full of cider because they were all saying you can't get any good cider you know can you bring the cider and it was like one of those big 
kind of like a thing you put paraffin in or something. It was pretty big. Um, uh, and I took it out and I had it hidden under a coat, but I got stopped by the customs on the way out. Ironically, smuggling, yeah, <laughs> normally it would be the other way around. If you're trying to smuggle it out and onto the ship, that would be the problem. I was caught trying to smuggle cider into the into Greece, basically from a British naval ship, um, which could have been horrendous for my career, actually. And they literally, they kind of, they spotted it first and then they kind of made me, you know, undo my coat and they were like, and, they, and I was saying, I was, I was trying to tell them it was apple juice. I'm not sure their English was that great. And they were sniffing it and I was going, what's the problem? It's just apple juice. But they kind of took me into an office and were, were trying to ring the ship to talk to the, the captain of the ship, if you like, to say, oh, we've caught this sailor trying to smuggle alcohol into our country. When, when, Unbelievably, given that we'd been drinking a lot, another friend of mine suddenly appeared in the office. And it was like we had this synchronized moment where we both had the same idea at the same time. So I stood up and saluted him and, and, and said, Captain, what are you doing here? And he straight away was like, what are you doing with my man in this office? <laughs> the guys were going, are you the captain of the ship? He was going, yes, I am. And why are you in, you know, and, 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 and they, they made him um, examine this cider. And of course he went, it's apple juice. What's your problem? And they were so bemused that they let us both go and sent us on our way quite happily. So that could have been incredibly embarrassing. And for a while it was, but I was saved by some amazing improvisation by two very drunk sailors of which I was one. I still have no idea how we came up with that plan without having any kind of conversation about it at all. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a great moment. Yeah, that's epic. I love that. That's brilliant. <laughs> Those moments you just can't write. Can you could have, of course, been languishing in a Greek prison to this very day if, if that had gone sadly wrong. But you yeah, know. I think they'd have let you out by now. Right. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, if you're able to travel to any period in time, forward or back, where would you like to go to? Wow. It's a good question. God, I can't, I think I'd quite, I mean, I was there in the 60s, um, but I was too young to kind of know what it was all about. So I like to have been slightly older in the, in the 60s when kind of music and fashion was all taking off a little bit. So, you know, around the kind of, I guess, 67, 68, around then, if I'd have been about 20 then. So I needed to have been about 10 years older than I am. Um, that would have been pretty cool, I think. Uh, and also, I, I, did, I didn't want to go back to any time when there was, you know, there was lots of nasty stuff going on back in the day. I, I wouldn't want to, <laughs> I don't think I want to go back any, any further than that in time. I, you know, we've had it fairly comfortable, um, aside from the last 15 months or so. Uh, so that, yeah, given, uh, given what a big music fan I am, it would have been great to have been around when music kind of changed, didn't it, in that kind of era? Before that, I mean, it was all pretty dull, frankly. Um, but yeah, from the mid sixties onwards, some sometime around then, I'd like to have been a little bit older than I was. Yeah, I mean, I was born in the uh, uh, early eighties, 
So it's the same. I'd like to have been old enough to experience the music of the 80s without being like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it is. You you remember the kind of cool stuff from when you were a kid, but you were too young to know much about it at the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first started getting into music, it was the like early 90s, and that just really wasn't a good time for music. (laughs) (laughs) It comes and goes. There's always some good bands around if you look hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can't remember if that's when, like, Take That and the Spice Girls started or whether that was later, but it's not the same as, like, Queen and George Michael and, you know, people like that, is it, really? Yeah, that is true. That is true. Nobody could deny that. Um, So what are you working on at the moment and what's coming next for you? (laughs) Um, I've just... Well, the... the, the, um, the Homeless series featuring um, Jimmy Mullen, who's ex-Navy but has been homeless for quite some time, uh, is a three-book series, basically. that When I first wrote The Man on the Street, I assumed I'd written a standalone novel. It was about a homeless guy who sees a murder um, and ends up getting involved in finding out what's going on. And I kind of argued quite strongly that that was a standalone book. But my editor and publishers argued even more strongly that it was a series um, because of the characters, they liked the characters and they think they thought people would want to read more about them and that turned out to be true. But I didn't want to stretch it too far because it's supposed to be set in the real world. Um, and I couldn't, I, I just couldn't justify my homeless guy kind of continually tripping over bodies and solving crimes because <laughs> uh, it kind of took it away from what was the point of it really, which is to kind of make people empathise a bit more about the situation that the homeless are in. So so I eventually agreed to a way of doing three books. Um, my main character has two homeless friends. Um, and, and in the first book, you find out all about how Jimmy, the main character, ended up on the streets as well as the current crime story. And I thought, well, okay, in the other two books, we can find out how his two friends ended up living on the streets and what their story is. And then I can justify three books. So. So um, I got a two book deal initially, but because the first book went so well, they immediately offered me a second two book deal. So I agreed on the grounds that the first one of that second two book deal would be the final book in the trilogy. Uh, And my fourth book would be a standalone to be decided at a future date. Well, I've just delivered uh, the third book in the trilogy, which will be called Dead End Street. They're all street books. That's The Man on the Street, One Way Street and Dead End Street. Um, I'm not sure how long I could have maintained street titles. <laughs> Although somebody the other day did say to me, there are a lot of streets. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. Coronations, you know, just whatever. <laughs> but anyway, so I've just delivered the third in the series, Dead End Street, and that's been copy edited. So that is done now, I think, um, unless they suddenly discover some horrendous error at some point. Uh, and I've just started a standalone novel which is tentatively called You Can Run um, which is set in a small Northumberland village uh, and I'm about 20,000 words into that at the moment so that will be book four and that will be a standalone <laughs> well I don't think I have any more questions for you unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you about that you want to tell us Oh, no, I think you've asked me a lot of things that I didn't anticipate being asked. Um, uh, certainly a few questions I've never been asked before. It was great fun. Good. 
That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Keep you a lot on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so would you like to remind everyone where they can find out more about you and where they can get your books? Uh, I will. Um, I do have a website and I'm just trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it's www.trevorwoodauthor.co.uk. Uh, so you can pick up a few bits and pieces there. And there is also, if you subscribe to it, you get a free short story, um, which I was just telling somebody is much gentler than the books. Um, and it's basically the story of where my main character, Jimmy, meets his dog. Um, so it's very gentle. And if you're an animal lover, uh, that should appeal to you. Jimmy does have a dog called Dog because um, he couldn't be asked to think of a name for him. Um, uh, and Dog uh, never comes to any real harm for those who are worried about that kind of thing, which is pretty much everybody in the history of readers, I think. <laughs> yep. um, so that's one way. I'm on Twitter at, at Trevor Wood Wright, W-R-I-T-E, uh, and I'm engaged on there pretty much every day. Um, so if you want to contact me, that's probably the easiest way to do it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That was a pleasure, Tom. <laughs>